This Week in Oklahoma Politics on KOSU is sponsored by the State Chamber of Oklahoma. For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and civil rights attorney Ryan Kiesel joining me over Zoom video conference. Nearly 9,000 documents obtained by the Associated Press show Governor Stitt received several requests from citizens asking him to impose lockdowns when the COVID-19 pandemic hit the state. At the same time, he heard from dozens of businesses asking him to keep their establishments open. Neva, what do you think of the governor's decision to balance out these different requests? Well, I think I think this is a fascinating look at how Governor Stitt, as well as every governor across the country, has uh, had to develop policies uh, in response to the uh, to the pandemic have have had to look at it from the economic impact on the state. Certainly, um, as we as we know, the governor was in intent uh, uh, from the outset to try to reopen the state's economy is and make that a priority. Do it as quickly as possible, which happened last June. As we look at uh, as we look at where we are today, I mean, we have the lowest unemployment in the region. We have a, a budget surplus of almost one point six billion dollars, um, and Clearly, the flip the counter to side to that is that uh, uh, that there's been tremendous impact in terms of loss of life and uh, certainly the impact on the economy. But I think when we look at Oklahoma versus the rest of the nation, when you when you look at reports that say that uh, the impact nationwide of this pandemic is somewhere in the eight trillion dollar range. I mean, the long term um, impact on the economy is something that uh, uh, that we haven't even be- really begun to uh, see what the implications are in the, even in the next decade. But for Oklahoma, I think what we see is that we're in a much more enviable position in terms of the economic picture, uh, as well as uh, talking about what has been done to, uh, uh, to be very aggressive in making sure in the rollout of getting vaccines uh, uh, available and the percentage now of Oklahomans that have received either one shot or both shots is uh, something like we talked about last week, something that I think we can applaud the effort in that in that regard as well. Ryan. Well, you know, I, I want to you know comment on the story behind the story here, and that's that's process and the, the Open Records Act and the ability of journalists to get this information to give us a behind the scenes look into the way the state government has been operating on a number of issues, uh, you know, not just the response to the pandemic from the governor's office, but uh, the importance of uh, journalism, the importance of the ability, the ability to have access to these records, uh, the importance of groups like Freedom of, uh, Freedom of Information Oklahoma uh, that advocate on behalf of openness and transparency in government. Uh, so I think that that's an important part of the story that we shouldn't miss uh, and that we as Oklahomans, regardless of your political affiliation, should protect uh, you know, moving forward with our advocacy. The uh, the real question here, and I, I think that it's a matter of how you measure what the governor's response was. Um, you know, Senator Kay Floyd, when she looked at this report and she looked at, you know, what the governor's response was, is that we, we reopened our economy more aggressively than most states. We're in a good position economically. Uh, Senator Floyd, who's the, the leader of the Democrats in the Oklahoma State Senate, said that the better measure is loss of life. Uh, everything else is replaceable, but loss of life certainly isn't. And when you compare Oklahoma with a state like Oregon, uh, that's a, about the same size as Oklahoma uh, in terms of, of population and, and a lot of you know very 
uh, similar spread in terms of rural versus uh, a couple of urban centers, we doubled the loss of life uh, in terms of Oregon. Uh, and so, you know, that on that measure, we have we've certainly failed. Uh, and the governor's politicization of the pandemic at an, at an early stage, you know, I think you know, really set the tone for how the uh, Oklahoma was going to respond. I think that it gave very little cover to municipalities that were struggling to enact and enforce mask ordinances or stay at home orders. Uh, and it led to a lot of confusion as you moved from one jurisdiction in the state to the other. Uh, and the, the loss of life there, I think, is reflected in that. And, uh, you know, that's where that's where I think that ultimately, you know, maybe in the next year or so, we can look at the economic benefits. We can look at the revenue numbers that the state of Oklahoma has right now. But the loss of life over the over the long term, I think, will be uh, historically how uh, Oklahoma's response to this pandemic is measured. The state is responding to the lawsuit on the governor's plan to partially privatize Medicaid. According to the health care authority, state law allows the agency to pursue managed care without specific details of the change being mandated by the legislature. The suit seeks an injunction against moving forward with managed care until the legislature can review it. Ryan, what do you think of the state's case here? Well, you know, I'm glad I stayed at the Holiday Inn Express last night. I'm <laughs> serious. I'm taping this from Holiday Inn Express uh, because otherwise I wouldn't be able to talk about things like prepaid capitated basis, uh, which uh, makes makes mention uh, makes makes an appearance multiple times in the uh, the defendant's response to the to the lawsuit here. Um, yeah, there's a there's a serious question at the outset, and I, I don't know the answer to this. And Michael or Neva, if, if either of you do, I'd I'd be interested in it, but. Why is the attorney general not representing the Oklahoma Health Care Authority and the other defendants in this case, uh, like the attorney general normally does whenever the state of Oklahoma or one of its agencies is sued? Here we have outside counsel, uh, Robert McCampbell, uh, Jay Walters uh, with Gable Gottwals, uh, and, and another attorney who's a, a newer attorney at Gable Gottwals who are representing the Oklahoma Health Care Authority and the defendants here. Um, you know, these are all incredibly capable lawyers. Uh, and are no stranger to uh, to cases like this in front of the state Supreme Court. But why isn't the attorney general on this lawsuit representing a state agency? Um, and that's and I'm not I'm not asking that to to, uh, to attack anybody or anything like that, but it's a, a genuine question. Um, and then if you look at the, the merit of, of what this is, they they go back and there were there was a managed care uh, option that was contemplated in Oklahoma, but it was contemplated in the 1990s. Uh, and the statute that created that managed care option had very clear deadlines built into that statute with which the state of Oklahoma had to act, or if they didn't act, then the managed care provisions of, of that law seemed to have expired. And in the, the lawsuit, they, they say, well, there's, there's other references uh, to uh, things that may look like managed care in the state of Oklahoma and the legislature's never really done anything about that, even though they've amended laws around that same section of law. So managed care is allowable uh, for the health care authority. I think we'll see a, a strong response from the plaintiffs in this case. And ultimately, I would not be surprised at all if the Supreme Court sets this for oral argument to dig into some of these questions, in particular around the, the history and the legislative intent around managed care in Oklahoma. Um, this, is, this is far from over. Uh, and we still haven't even really seen the legislature dig in on this because uh, you know, the the defendant's brief really relies on lack of legislative um, uh, lack of legislative action on managed care since 
you know, for 20 years now. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we'll see what happens uh, when the legislature starts to dig into this as well. It may very well moot this lawsuit uh, before the end of May. Neva. I, I think there are so many questions, and and just like you point out, Ryan, I mean, there this is such a complex issue. There's such a strong divide on it in terms of uh, not only the philosophy of managed care or to have a fee for service, a fee for service system as we uh, have right now, um, but you have all of these um, all of these legal questions uh, that. Uh, that that come about when the statutes are not explicit uh, in some in in some cases or where they uh, go back and as you as you talk about I mean the the 1990s where uh, the state I briefly used the managed care what happened as I as I understand it uh, you know during that time was uh, that uh, the state opted out when the costs continued to rise and the providers beginning began to drop out. Uh, which of course creates this gap in coverage, and that's one of the big, uh, you know, that's one of the big arguments uh, by the the plaintiffs uh, um, in trying to make their case against managed care. But the long and the short of where we are right now today is it we have we have a situation where um, pro- providers have been selected, uh, the legislature's in session, but there seems to be very little movement. Uh, in um, in the legislative circles, in terms of uh, kind of wrapping their arms around this and deciding to go another direction. So what we may see is this, uh, depending on what happens with the court, um, uh, we we may see this move uh, you know move forward and then at some point uh, move back. I mean, I, I don't think it's going to be set in stone regardless of, of of what happens, just because of the fact that you have uh, such strong. Um, uh, advocates and opponents, and you have the governor in the mix, who's been perhaps the strongest advocate for converting the state's Medicaid system to managed care. So it's uh, it's front and center in his uh, in his political shop and in the governor's office. So um, those things become very important political cards uh, in the mix as we see whether or not uh, we're going to have uh, this privatization of Medicaid. Well, and if you're legislative leaders right now, anything that you want to do in the legislature either has to be a compromise with the governor or has to withstand a veto. Because if you just go out there and you try to undo this contract, you got to think that the governor's probably going to veto that. And can you overturn or override the governor's veto uh, with, with enough votes in the legislature? Well, and I think, you know, when we again, when we reflect back on the fact that uh, that much of this being driven by what the voters did last uh, last June, say question eight oh two. I mean, such a narrow victory. I mean, fifty point four nine percent to expand Medicaid, uh, and what these legislators uh, I think are hearing uh, back home. I mean, in their districts. I mean, when you look at uh, when you look at uh, so many of these groups that are out strongly. Uh, strongly against managed care. You have the Medical Association, Dental Association, the osteopaths, the anesthesiologists, the pediatric uh, pediatric association. I mean, you have formidable, not only na- uh, statewide associations, but those folks are in every hometown of these lawmakers, and they're hearing directly from them, the, phar- the pharmacists. I mean, folks that, that are directly uh, going to be impacted in some fashion in their estimation, they're making their case, I think, individually and collectively to these lawmakers. Whether that moves the needle uh, at the Capitol or not, I think is still probably the biggest question of all. 
House Speaker Charles McCall says he's moving forward with plans to provide $500 million in tax cuts. His plan calls for eliminating corporate income taxes over five years and reducing personal income taxes. However, a provision in the nearly $2 billion COVID-19 stimulus package prevents states from using the federal funds to subsidize tax cuts. Neva, could this be a snag in the speaker's plan? Well, I don't know if it's a snag yet, because, I mean, what, what we have is we have uh, our attorney general, 20 other attorneys general uh, asking uh, the uh, Treasury secretary to clarify this uh, this uh, language in the American Rescue Plan. So I, I think uh, I think what we'll see in the instance of Oklahoma, we're not talking about uh, backfilling uh, a budget hole. I mean, we have, uh, as as we've already said, uh, at the top of the program, I mean, we have a situation where we are in a good place and that we do not have a deficit. So I think this is obviously this is obviously a time when you are going to see some serious discussion about uh, a tax relief package. And in the instance of looking at eliminating uh, the corporate income tax uh, by 2026, uh, that certainly puts Oklahoma in a place to be much more competitive uh, uh, in the search for bringing good jobs into Oklahoma. Right now, we we lose to the Texas and Tennessee and Florida states uh, that uh, that we just can't uh, compete on this particular on this particular point. And with respect to reducing the personal income tax, I mean, we are looking at uh, it, it, this is one of those things that to me should be a bipartisan issue, not one that always divides Republican and Democrats, Republicans and Democrats, because uh, it, it helps it helps all Oklahomans. Uh, it puts more money in the pockets of Oklahomans. It does not uh, uh, it does not jeopardize uh, any of course services. It doesn't uh, jeopardize our schools. All of the arguments that uh, in the past have been the things to kind of throw that uh, throw that conversation off track, but. When we look at what the fiscal impact is versus what the economic uh, potential is for Oklahomans um, it, at every level of income, I think this is uh, something that uh, the speaker clearly is uh, going to move forward on very aggressively. And frankly, I think there'll be a real appetite in the legislature, it appears right now, uh, to uh, to get behind these proposals. Ryan. Well, you know, I think that that appetite's largely been in the the House of Representatives. I, I think when you get over to the Senate, and even even looking at what the governor has said at the outset of this legislative session, uh, I think there's a real concern about the use of one-time dollars that that occurred last year, uh, you know, over the governor's veto uh, that the, that the legislature overrode. Uh, you know, a, a huge chunk of of our current revenue situation, which is which is good. I mean, as as far as anybody can say, you know, we're we're in a much better position today than anybody I think would have imagined a year ago at the outset of this pandemic. But that said, a big reason that we're there are the use of one-time dollars, and so I think until there's an answer on uh, on moving forward what the revenue picture is going to look like, it's going to be a, a much harder sell over in the Senate than it was in the House, and and then ultimately with the governor, and you're going to need the Senate. Uh, if you're going to go against the governor here um, to, to uh, look at revenue uh, uh, reducing measures that and we're talking we're not talking about one hundred million dollars here. We're talking hundreds of millions of dollars over the course of never, uh, the next several years. But, and that's whenever we know that we have real infrastructure investments that uh, that the state of Oklahoma needs to to make. 
Uh, I'll just you know mention a couple that were exposed during the pandemic: the Oklahoma Employment Securities Commission uh, that were you know really fighting with antiquated technology, and they weren't they weren't up to speed to be able to process the kind of unemployment applications that the state of Oklahoma was looking at. Rural broadband, uh, you know, we we saw the the technology gap in Oklahoma really come to uh, to the surface and, and be exposed for what it is whenever. A lot of schools were moving to um, uh, to to virtual classrooms. You know, I happen to live in Oklahoma City. My kids uh, have you know great Wi-Fi, and uh, their school does as well. But that's not the case for a lot of uh, a lot of kids in rural Oklahoma. Whether that and also with telemedicine, the ability to see your doctor uh, and have reliable broadband technology to do stuff like that. Uh, you know, those those are real infrastructure needs that the state of Oklahoma has. They're not answered through tax cuts. And, you know, I will I will agree. And, you know, everybody, you know, uh, you know, pull over to the side of the road uh, as you're listening. I'll, I'll agree with the attorney general that there is some ambiguity here uh, with with the federal dollars that are coming in. Does it preclude any sort of tax cut whatsoever? If you have any sort of tax cut at the state level, does it mean that you have to forfeit your ability to have these recovery dollars coming in from the federal government? Now, if you look at on the flip side of that, if you look at the purpose of these recovery dollars that go into state budgets, it's to shore up budget shortfalls uh, that are are a result of the pandemic. So on one hand, we've got our state um, championing uh, the the news that or heralding the news that we have uh, a great budget picture, even in spite of the pandemic. Um, Is that really what we need those recovery dollars for then? Uh, So I think that that's if, if the federal government's saying state governments need this money to be able to get through a tough year, um, then I think that they've got a strong argument then at the federal level to say, you don't get to just give that money away and tax cuts that create a recurring revenue obligation for the state uh, without addressing the kind of infrastructure needs and budget shortfalls that we pass this money to begin with. But you're not really giving, the argument that you're kind of giving this, you know, boatload of money away is just not there. I mean, first of all, on the personal income tax, you're talking about a reduction of 0.25%. Um, that That is certainly not anything that uh, is a budget buster. When you look at uh, eliminating this corporate income tax by 2026, this is something that is phased in over five years, 20% each year for the five years. And when you look at the at uh, the uh, the economic uh, forecasts on this, you're looking at about $350 million a year back into the economy once it's fully implemented. So, I mean, when you start looking at the real impact and the real dollars and cents on these, it's a much different thing than just talking about we're for tax cuts or against tax cuts. Uh, and what uh, the simple kind of the simple overview is. But when you really start looking at long term, what the state can do to more competitive, bring in more jobs, higher paying jobs, uh, make these investments uh, in the economy, that that what you get with that are the corresponding increase in tax re- uh, the tax revenues from just having more people out there, more more successful businesses, uh, people with higher you know growing income uh, growing incomes. So I mean I think I think when we have these conversations, particularly when we start talking about uh, um, tax packages, relief packages, all of the things that are on the table out there, you really have to get into the details and weigh this. I mean in the instance of uh, in the instance of the uh, 
of the corporate income tax in this first year. We're talking uh, 65 million as the fiscal impact. Uh, we've got an eight billion dollar state budget and growing every year. So I think uh, I think we have to keep in perspective what we're talking about here, what the pluses and minuses are. Both of Oklahoma's senators voted against the nomination of Deb Holland to become the first Native American to lead the Department of the Interior. The decision by Senators Jim Inhofe and James Lankford came despite strong support from Oklahoma's tribal leaders for Deb Holland. Ryan, what do you think of this decision? Well, you know, first, let's celebrate. <clears throat> excuse me. Let's let's celebrate Secretary Holland, uh, the first indigenous secretary of the interior, uh, the first person uh, with with her voice and perspective in a presidential cabinet. I mean, this this is huge. And uh, especially to serve in the role of secretary interior, a federal uh, uh, cabinet position and, and department that has uh, has a history of abuse and exploitation of indigenous peoples and their resources and their lands uh, over its long history uh, in the United States. And so Secretary Holland, who uh, says that she is a 35th generation New Mexican, uh, is uh, is a, a fitting person now to come into this role. Uh, and and, it, and it, the, the amount of impact and jurisdiction that it's going to have over indigenous lands uh, and tribal governments uh, is is enormous. Uh, and I think that you're going to see a renewed era of, uh, not, not a renewed era, a new era of cooperation uh, and mutual respect and, and, um, and projects between tribal governments and the federal government and then, then the states that, that coexist in those jurisdictions. So that's, that's a huge deal. I think that it wasn't any surprise uh, that we were going to see the two senators from Oklahoma vote no. Uh, Senator or Representative Holland or Secretary Holland, before she was secretary, was a member of Congress and uh, was a strong proponent of uh, alternative energy sources uh, and fighting climate change. And uh, of course, uh, that's going to mean as secretary, uh, she will have a huge uh, amount of influence over uh, the exploration and, and, uh, and uh, extraction of natural resources from federal lands. Uh, I think that there was a, a report that was cited by the New York Times that, sh that said that 25% of greenhouse gas emissions in the United States uh, are directly tied to the extraction uh, and use of fossil fuels from federal lands. And you know, I think that that's that's a huge contributing factor to climate change, and it's one way that the federal government can you know very immediately step in and begin to curb the United States's contribution uh, to greenhouse gases and and uh, begin to try to curb the effects, mitigate the effects of climate change that we're already seeing around the world, but right here at our doorstep in Oklahoma. Uh, I don't think it was a surprise. Again, I don't think it was a surprise that the two senators voted uh, against her confirmation. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, she is now the Secretary of the Interior, and I think that we uh, are, are going to see some, some great things from that department. And I think that as a result, we'll see some great things uh, coming out of our, our tribal governments right here in Oklahoma. Neva. Well, I think what we will see, as we as we will see on many fronts with the uh, uh, with the Biden administration, is we're going to see a lot of big changes, and not necessarily changes that are going to be good for Oklahoma, particularly Oklahoma as such a strong energy producing state. So to have both United States senators uh, expressing their concern, um, their um, concern with her very what was described as non-committal answers uh, 
uh, on her commitment to, to ensure that we have the power we need uh, to uh, to just conduct daily life, to fuel homes, have clean air, water, land, all of those things. But when we look at her profile, I think we do see again, where big change will be coming. We have someone who was ranked in the top 10 uh, as in the top 10 most liberal House members when she was in Congress. She was a co-sponsor of the Green New Deal. She's supported banning fracking, uh, restricting oil and gas leasing on federal lands, something that um, um, the Biden administration put a moratorium on new drilling leases on public land almost the moment they uh, set foot in in office. So, I mean, we are seeing big changes and not all of those are going to uh, um, to be good for uh, Oklahomans, certainly for the energy, uh, the energy sector. And hopefully, even though there is this um, um, this certainly consensus among uh, even Oklahoma tribes, the 26 tribes coming together to send the letter uh, to uh, both senators urging uh, support for her for her confirmation, what we do have is a situation where there has to be better conversation at the table uh, by all parties if we're going to move forward and have uh, success and not just have uh, one-dimensional thinking. And that is, uh, I think that's a concern. And get, and uh, certainly uh, she she went through the confirmation process, was uh, uh, received the 5140 vote. So she he is the the secretary. Uh, her her uh, significance in terms of the being the first, uh, as you've described, Ryan, on uh, on several levels, is in is noteworthy. But what is critical is that there be um, there be the ability, particularly for for Oklahoma, to be able to have uh, solid conversations with the Interior Department on issues uh, just like we've described that are so impacting on all Americans. Well, if, if you look at the way those conversations are going to happen, and I think that this demonstrates uh, the growing importance and relevance of, of Oklahoma's tribal governments, uh, those conversations are largely going to be happening, at least in terms of Oklahoma, I think, from leadership from tribal governments to the Interior Department. Uh, you know, you look at Principal Chief of Cherokee Nation, Chuck Hoskin Jr., I, I think that it's more likely that we'll see... Um, the tribal governments in Oklahoma and, and folks like Chief Hoskin uh, driving those conversations in Washington uh, than uh, our two U.S. senators at this moment, which I think is uh, is, is interesting. And, and if you look at the kind of leadership that we've seen out of tribal governments in Oklahoma, uh, I'm excited about that. Aniva and Ryan's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of KOSU, its staff or management. Programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at KOSU.org.